1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today I'm talking to Dr. Damien Sojoiner, who is the author of the book Joy and Pain, a story of black life and liberation in five albums published by the University of California Press. Dr. Sojoiner, welcome to the podcast.
2: Regan, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about your book. And I figured since this is New Books in Anthropology, I would start with the question of what drew you to study anthropology and become an anthropologist.
2: Well, that's a, that is a multi-layered question. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it uh, <laughs> my, my best go, um, which is... The first time I encountered anthropology as a discipline probably was in an undergraduate, um, uh, as a freshman, and we had to take a series of courses, and the theme for our uh, series was on anthropology. At the time, it really didn't uh, sort. I I didn't gravitate towards it because a lot of it was sort of um, archaeological uh, inflected, Um, and so I just I didn't have interest to it. in my subsequent, I majored in African American studies, got a master in sociology, but then fast forward and I have the opportunity uh, to work with uh, Jerome Costa Vargas, who was then at the University of Texas at Austin. And I was introduced to this sort of whole new world um, of of anthropology, which was completely different um, than that of what I was first introduced, uh, many years prior. And, um, the way the anthropology, uh, was sort of taught there, um, there was a focus on African diaspora and, uh, we would read material. This is all, you know, in, in graduate school, we read material such as, uh, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, uh, Du Bois. And this is in, like a you know like a first year seminar, um, this is a, a African diaspora seminar, seminar uh, alongside uh, Mints and Price, and so it's it was just a, a a whole new sort of opening, and I think in particular because <clears throat> Jerome's um, research at the time was focused on Los Angeles, and um, I had interest in, in L.A. as well, and seeing this coalescence between. Uh, an African diaspora perspective where they had a strong emphasis on activism around a place that I really held uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, which is, I don't know, it was like a a perfect match. Um, And I think the way that the the, the training really questioned ethnography, the limits of ethnography, pushing ethnography in certain ways, Um, in addition to uh, my cohorts, who were there who were, it was just a fantastic um, experience. There was um, people who were doing these projects around Blackness in Brazil, Honduras, Nicaragua, um, that, I mean, just it opened up a whole different way for me to think about things. Um, And our first year seminars there, I mean, really challenged uh, each other. I met people for the first time who were stone cold Marxists. Like I didn't think those people still existed <laughs> at the time, but, uh, we were, you know, roughly around the same age. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, um, from South Asia and yeah, it, it was just, it, it was, um, an opening experience. I learned so much from that. And that was sort of my, my firm grounding in the discipline. Um, And then I sort of subsequently learned that 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 was not necessarily what the discipline was all about outside of of that particular bubble. Um, And I was sort of thinking like, okay, this is what what anthropology is, right? And and I, um, prior to that, uh, had been going to American studies conferences. And so I was familiar with what academia was. Um, And so I remember going to my first AAA conference, right? This is back in like so I first went to American States conference and my first one was in 2001 and my first AAA conference, it was like 2004, 2005. And I was like, Oh, Austin is not <laughs> the rest of anthro. Right. Um, and so it was, it was a, a, a weird sort of dynamic, um, where I was trying to find my footing, um, because I wasn't necessarily readily, um, I didn't, yeah, I, I, I would say that anthropology didn't necessarily accept me <laughs> at first, right? I don't know if it, it does writ large, right, um, at all. Um, and to a certain extent, I'm not necessarily worried about that question as much anymore. Um, but, you know, prior to then, I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do um, with this degree, you know, that I now have? Um, but long story short, I feel like I'm, I'm rambling on here uh, to your question. Um, more, more important than like finding a home or finding a space was that I had found an intellectual um, sort of uh, grounding in a way that would enable me to situate how I learned and how I would process information that would forever change um, sort of my uh, stance on how the world seemed to me. Um, And for that, I'm forever grateful.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting and a very transformative experience at, at UT Austin and the African Diaspora Studies program there. Um, and so that that takes me to the question of your your first book was called First Strike, Educational Enclosures in Black Los Angeles. So you've been working in this space of Black people's experiences of education in Los Angeles for some time now. And then this book that we're going to talk about, Joy and Pain, also focuses on Black life in LA. So can you tell us um, anything uh, about yourself and how you came to write this book?
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, as as you mentioned, I, uh, the first research project was centered in Los Angeles, and I'm, I'm from uh, LA uh, as well. Um, and it's a place that's sort of like it's it's important to me in in many ways because LA um, signifies many things to many people, in large part because of the the entertainment industry being so prevalent here, um, and representations of what, in particular, Black LA life are um, are sort of pronounced in a way um that are in, in some way uh impact maybe and, and, I, and I say this it's, it's much more nuanced right but uh have a uh, a large impact on what black life means for the rest of the country in terms of it being exported out and purely by that i mean like you know there's so many representations of black LA life that get sort of um consumed by by the public um, that go back to the you know roughly the, the 1980s it was like a, a a turning point of of that happening um and so I was I've been hyper aware of that and, and, and in addition to being hyper aware that California um, is often seen as sort of like this liberal multiracial bastion, of where you know everybody can sort of make it, um, and and live um, in harmony together, right? And of course, that gets disrupted by 1965 and 1992. Um, but by and large, even now, you still see that. Um, as you know, if you turn on the news, <laughs> the the local news here in LA, <laughs> there there's been a a lot of talk about people are leaving. Uh, L.A. because the politics are too liberal, and they're not tough enough on crime, and that leads to houselessness and all these things, right? So it it that's still the the subtext um, behind so many of the narratives about L.A. Um, and so, uh, given that um, it registers as a place that is both overstudied and over saturated at the same time. I feel like woefully understudied and under theorized, um, which is a strange duality, but became readily apparent to me in my work with the Southern California Library. Um, and it was through my conversations with the stewards of the library, Yusuf Omawali, Michelle Wellesley, um, and Raquel Chavez, that there was a lot about LA. That was unseen, but yet all over the place, right? Sort of like hiding in, in plain sight. And in particular, we have been discussing for a long, for almost over over a decade now. Um, but the sort of the one of the driving forces behind the book was understanding what are the root causes that sort of give rise to both. Um, The manifestations of prisons, prison industrial complex, carcerality um, on one hand, but then also how are people fighting against those manifestations as well outside of the dominant sort of motifs of understanding how one should fight against that. And that's most notably within, let's say, like the nonprofit uh, sector. Because by and large, um, what they were finding was that um, nonprofits had sort of developed um, entrees with foundation worlds and with the state sort of writ large that excluded the vast majority of Black people for whom they were supposed to be talking about and thus represented a problem both in terms of um, asserting victories when victories really weren't happening, but then also just a lack of theorizing about what was happening. And so um, a major um, sort of framing device was to understand the dynamics of carcerality that bled throughout all of these state structures absent of the physical site of prisons um, in jails, uh, but then how did that sort of bleeding process affect, um, the lives of Black people who had been living in precarious situations, uh, for the past roughly 30 to 40 years in a place that supposedly was this liberal multiracial, um, utopia, right? Um, and so that, that you know, trying try to answer that question, trying to figure out possible solutions. And then at the end of the day, it was just hoping this is very much in line with the first book um, to, to, to simply introduce ideas that would um, be taken seriously as a way to counter some of the common sense renderings um, that have been held uh, sort of on to so firmly.
0: Great. So you may have just answered this question, but I wanted to to ask you um, if you could tell us also in your own words, I guess, what the book is about or what you're arguing in the book. And I I kind of, I start with the title of the book, Joy and Pain, A Story of Black Life and Liberation in Five Albums. And you just kind of mentioned this, you talk about the precarity of black life in Los Angeles um, and resistance. And I wanted to did you want to expand on that at all and talk about uh, what the book is about and, and your main arguments in the book?
2: Sure, sure. Um, so my sort of um, coming, and this is, I'll, I'll I answer the question um, by maybe going a little bit more um, in depth to how it is that I came um, to understand the crucial state in a way that that I do, which is that my own sort of political formation was deeply influenced um by the critical resistance conference that took place on the campus of uc berkeley i believe it was in 1998 and it was there that i first heard the term abolition of the prison industrial complex and it sort of just blew my mind right um and i wanted to learn as much as i could um about it and what was it exactly that Uh, was meant by that and what I quickly um, came to understand is that while there had been a lot of focus in particular in academia on uh, prisons from the uh, from the aspect of the site of the physical prison and from the narratives as dictated by the state and what I mean by that is um, the state account of how and why prisons were developed um and those narratives also uh focusing on uh prisons as relationship to safety um and measures of understanding um black life in the context of a very parochial sense that being the the united states uh needed to be completely exploded and under um a new framework that understood the prison industrial complex as being a multi-headed hydra in, in a way uh that while um sort of most readily could be seen in the physical buildup of jails and prisons uh was a part of a state process that really had to be analyzed and as a a multi um, system. Uh, and so in that way, part uh, a, a major part of the impetus for the book um, was to present an ethnographic rendering of what it is for Black people to exist within a state system, this in, in, in the case specifically of California, um, that is governed by the logics of carcerality, um, that is uh, specifically um, my understanding of that is that the carceral state is built upon a system of re- relationships, and these relationships sort of feed each other along the way, um, and so they you know that bleeds through aspects of housing of. Education, healthcare, nonprofit as well. Um, so that's the on, on sort of like the A side of um, each album, um, and we follow the journey uh, of a young man by the name of Marley, and Marley and his sort of um, both struggles and uh, successes in forming. Um, Resistance against the carceral state while also navigating its jagged edges. Um, And so, with that, we also have the B side, and the B side are not ethnographic, are archival um, records as taken from the Southern California Library of um, activist organizations who were fighting against the buildup of. What, what would become the prison industrial complex. Um, the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party, the Coalition Against Police Abuse, uh, Mothers uh, Reclaiming Our Children, and the Clyde Woods archive as well. Um, and so, oh, and, and, I, and I forgot one, which is the Urban Policy Research Institute. These archives were used in political education classes hosted by the Southern California Library, of which I met Marley for the first time when he was with his um, friends attending during a summer of, I believe it was 2009. Um, Now, it's important to to sort of note that the B-side sort of lay the foundations and the the context for how it is that we get to the A side. Roughly from the late 1950s up until 1992. um, Marley's born in 92 and 92 is a very pivotal year um, in LA because that's the year of the rebellion. Um, And it's a year of a lot of shifts um, in in the city. And so we we get the sense of how it is that we get to this point um, where things are constantly Um, In struggle um, for much of Black LA uh, on the B side and the the A side sort of tells that story how it is right now.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, So I'm going to follow up with this A side and B side that you talk about because you just talked about how you structure the book and each chapter um in the book through this the idea of the a side and the b side and it resembles a record album and as you just told us the a side is ethnographic and the b side gives us this historical context and i wondered how you came to this structure and i asked that because i read a lot of ethnographic books and the structure to me seemed very unique and so i wondered how you just how you came up with it
2: okay yes so in terms of the album One thing that was always present all the time was music. Um, Whenever you're in the Southern California Library, there's always music playing. It doesn't matter if it's a handful of people in there or if it's a lot of people um, uh, in various meetings. Music uh, was always playing in the background. Uh, Marley and his, uh, well, Marley is an artist uh, as well. And many of his friends were, were artists. And so, music was a presence. We were always talking about music. Um, they were always playing uh, different um, forms of music that that they had made. Uh, and so, music was everywhere, right? But I'm, I'm, you know, I was sort of, I didn't want necessarily. I was trying to figure out like how to convey that message of music and the writing, and it's very difficult because music music is such an emotional experience, and and what I mean by that is it, it's a feeling that you get oftentimes. You need to be there um, to 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 share it. Um, and it's something that's hard to to write about and convey the, the that strong emotional sentiment that is associated with it. And so um one of the strategies that I did then was was like, well, let me sh- if, if I structure the book like an album, then the reader is aware of music. Um, because of the structure, so in that way, you it, it's always present, but not necessarily sort of like in your face, but you're aware of it, and that was a uh, uh, you know sort of like a a, a a tip of the hat to the Southern California Front Library because in many ways that's how music um, was situated in 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 the library itself of the, this this ever present. Uh, feel of it. Um, and, and with regard to the A side and the B side, um, another, um, major source of inspiration was Octavia Butler, um, her writing of the, the parable series, um, in particular Par- parable of the sower and parable of, of the talents of which are, uh, two of my most favorite books. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think I'm drawn, drawn to them, um, in part because they're, they're situated sort of in like this um, dystopic uh, future of LA, um, of which I believe were like the the books were written in the 1990s, uh, but they were set like in the 2020s, right? So I think we're sort of in that time period <laughs> right now um, from, from which Butler was writing the books. Um, but more than that, I was just captivated um by how she had framed uh, the storytelling in there, from where you have the rendering of the present, uh, which was going through the struggle of trying to live um, in a world that's crumbling around you and where there is violence, there's hurt, there's love, immediately followed by these visions of what the future should be slash could be under this the aversioning community of Earthseed and in that way um, that structure really um, drew me in as a way to tell a story um, and to convey both that which you're living in versus that which you um, cannot materially see but you have these visions of what um, should be and my goal with the A side and the B side was was both that, which is to document sort of like these stories about um, a world that's lived in, but then also from the, the archival uh, standpoint, uh, organizations who are mapping out like, this is what the future is. Let's hold this off. Let's fight against it so we can build up something else. Because if we follow this agenda, this is what um, will, will happen. And in, in much of, of that way, um, Marley and his uh, sort of peers use that information from those classes as a way to inform uh, their framing when they um, sort of met to con- contest uh, the state in, in, in various ways.
0: So you became involved with the Southern California Library for the project focusing on black youth in the carceral state. And you've already talked a little bit about this, Um, but the book revolves around the Southern California Library and the life of Marley, who's your primary interlocutor. And so could you just describe for us a little bit about the Southern California Library and about Marley as a person?
2: Sure. Um, So the Southern California Library is a community library uh, located in South Central L.A. Uh, off of Vermont Avenue. Um, it is probably one of what I, what I would argue is one of the most important library in terms of housing collections, uh, a broad range of collections um, from the quote-unquote like left, if you will. Uh, and so there's collections from the International Oil uh, Workers Union, Uh, all the way to, as I mentioned before, the L.A. Chapter Black Panther Party. Uh, They have collections from Black periodicals uh, ranging from uh, the California Eagle to the Sentinel, Los Angeles Watts Times, uh, to Ebony and Jet um, as well. Uh, They have a collection of albums, um, videos, recordings, and as I mentioned, organizations just as the Coalition Against Police abuse, Urban Policy Research Institute. Uh, so the the as an archival space, it's just it's a, a treasure trove of of um of information. Um, and importantly, uh, the work that Michelle Yusuf and Raquel have been doing over the roughly the past fifteen years um, is to also document the uh, ex- experiences and oral histories of Black people who immediately live around the library. And so they've um, uh, sort of embarked upon collecting uh, those stories to then add to the collections. Um, Second, I would say, is that it it serves as sort of a beacon so that uh, many organizations and activist groups use the library as a meeting space, as an organizing uh, space as well. Uh, its history sort of dates back um to the red scare moment um in in um southern california uh and Emil fried who was the the founder um, of of the library uh sort of uh formed this space as a way to collect um information from people who were literally uh being hounded by the government for being either communists or sympathizers to the cp um and as a way to hold on to sort of like precious documents uh as well so it it has this very um wide-ranging eclectic history uh to to where we get um to to this day of of where it it really um is a, a a fundamental part of the neighborhood and Yusuf um, and Michelle in particular were very adamant that they don't see the library or the space or themselves as organizing the neighborhood as much as being a part of the neighborhood and people neighborhood being able to use the library for a wide range of resources whether it be just simply being tired and stopping in send down for fifteen minutes to an hour, just sort of to catch your thought and breath and moments. To parents coming in with their children, having to do assignments, um, to hosting political education workshops. So it, it it it's a wide range in terms of what they do, but they're they're very intentional about what their role is in the neighborhood. And Marley is um, someone who I met while um, uh, working with the library on one of those political education workshops. I believe he was 16 at the time Well, when, when we first met and he had withdrawn from school. Uh, he was houseless, but yet he was a very instrumental person in the neighborhood um, just because of this sort of natural charisma uh, that he had uh and he uh was he he had a, like this air of confidence about him that was very similar to many other people in in the neighborhood as well in, in 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 the sense that the sort of there was no he was not defined by the state's narrative of who he was at all and that became very um important in terms of understanding how it is that Black communities, in particular in LA, um, have been able to come up with a host of ontological traditions that completely circumvent um, sort of Western normative standards and yet instill um, sort of create beauty in the midst of extreme precarity. And um, Marley was very straight up about this as well. He was even straight up about that with me, <laughs> as, as I tell him the book. Like he, when we first met, uh, he really wasn't too fond of me <laughs> at all because here I was, ostensibly an outsider. Um, even though you know I grew up in in LA, um, but he didn't know me. Um, not many people around the um, neighborhood and in the library knew me either. And he saw me as someone who was representative of that sort of same state life where I was coming in to tell him information that he felt he already had um, sort of an idea, a grasp on what was happening. And he was right. And, and much of um, my time in engaging with Marley and engaging with the library, I learned far more than what Marley or his peers uh, gained you know, f- from me at all. Um, and I think that natural sort of uh, distrust didn't come at all from a place of malice, but it was an understanding that virtually every representation of the state at best was judging who he and his friends were. Um, and more than likely, we're trying to figure out how to sort of take him and put him in the clutches of the carceral apparatus rather intentional or not intentional he was just hyper aware of this um and so that was sort of like the, the basis of how we met and then of course over time um we just created this bond and became really close um and my relationship with, with the library as well grew extremely um tight and close um to where you know we we still do projects uh together and i still talk to Marley qu- quite a bit
0: Yeah, the Southern California Library seems like an incredible resource for the community. And Marley seems like a really, um, just a really amazing kind of interlocutor in the book. And his, his personality is just, um, it's just, it's just clear in the book as you, and your, the relationship that you have to him as well kind of jumps off the page. And, and just to go more into, I guess, the content of the book, you look at the, you know, precarity of Black life, as you said earlier, through the lenses of food, work, education, and housing. And I just wanted to maybe focus, I guess, on education, um, because, and you as you said, Marley and you seem to really get at these absurdities and contradictions between what the state wants um, and, and the effects of it. So the state is constantly trying to institute what it thinks is, what it thinks the community needs, but it leads to these Usually contradictions and, um, and and maybe f- further further's problems, and so for example, you point to this contradiction about how education can work against Black people and make make life more precarious by where the schools are just simply located in the community, um, and so I wondered if you could just uh, expand on this and talk about it.
2: Sure, and I think that, you know part of that goes into those ontological worldviews of how people literally see um, uh, the sort of mapping of space um, is dramatically different. And then because of that, then uh, they have sort of knowledge that's gained that looks or may be considered to be absurd slash conspiratorial as well. And um, and, an anecdote is exactly um, what, what you were alluding to in in that uh, during this time period, which is roughly around 2010, 2011, uh, there there were several schools that were being built um, as a result of a bond measure that passed in LA. Um, And the LA Unified School District was um, sort of charged with building a series of elementary, middle, and high schools uh, throughout the city because a lot of the schools were overcrowded one of the high schools that was being built was situated um, right in the middle of two sort of um, factions or groups that were at odds with each other. And Marley knew this um, very well, as did most people in in the neighborhood. And from his read of it, <clears throat> it was uh, the city had to know this, right? Because the he uh as being someone who was constantly being targeted by the police the he was firmly aware that the police knew where every single quote-unquote gang was situated in the city and he knew that if the police knew this then the school district definitely knew this because the police and the school district work hand in hand um and so the he also was. He also knew that if a school was built in this neighborhood, that problems immediately were going to happen because you're going to have um, youth from both sides of the neighborhood meeting in this one place. And that was going to present a whole bunch of problems, like a series of problems. From Marley's vantage point, this was very much intentional because then it would provide a justification for the police to increase their presence in the said school, right? And then begin to do the work of surveilling, arresting, and forever altering the life path of Black youth. So that's just one anecdote of um, of how it is that there can be, on the face of it, a benevolent measure that's passed. But when you actually get down to the planning and implementation of for in this instance of schools something else slightly more nefarious um, is more than likely a, a, a foot uh, sh- shall, shall we say?
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and that's so important the knowledge that people in the community have is and that and that he even knows that the city knows this too further you know contributes to his, his understanding of, of what's going on and the, the kind of structures that are that are at play, which I'm going to ask you about um, in a second. but I wanted to ask you then, what is the B side of this I, this discussion of schools um, right. that you then right. pull out of the archive because I think you talk about like some policies that are happening after the Watts riot. And so how were um, schools then constructed as sites of containment for black youth?
2: right yeah that's a that's an excellent follow up <clears throat> which is that while that may seem and that's why i I bring up that term conspiratorial, is that Marley's argument may seem to be far afield in that way, if not it the understanding of what happens after nineteen sixty five which is that there's a recognition there's a direct recognition that the Watts rebellion was organized in particular out of high schools and in particular out of, um, four to five high schools in South central LA, such as manual arts, Dorsey high school, uh, Fremont high school and Washington high school, uh, being four of the most prominent, uh, at the time, um, and that black organizations, which. Um, such as the Slausons and the gladiators and the businessmen, uh, which were organizing out of these high schools, were responsible for leading the revolt against the city and the police in 1965. This was acutely made aware um, by the city. like They recognized that they had completely Missed this like they they just didn't see this at all um sort of coming this idea also as as an aside that um 65 and 92 were somehow spontaneous actions that were not planned or organized uh, is completely discredited by the archive itself in which the city recognizes that in fact it was well organized and well planned as a response to this the city then implements a program called police and government in which the LAPD then sends police officers into these high schools, these main high schools where, um, black organizations had organized themselves as a way to try to, um, form a counterinsurgent, uh, Action against the organizing efforts of black people in their neighborhoods against violence emanating from the state and from the city. Uh, and this was not in the context now of what we think about police in terms of like safety. So it's not like a a, a program where uh, police are there to sort of quote unquote keep the peace. Police are literally sent in there to teach classes um, and teach courses. And then in In part, what they're doing is collecting information. And so the the questions that they're asking are Did you participate in 1965? Did any of your family members participate in 1965? Um, uh, What do you think civil unrest means? All the way to gathering information with regards to um, the Bill of Rights, telling them this is what the Bill of Rights means for them, so on and so forth, right? So then, if we fast forward to 1992, then um we see that this is this has been sort of heightened um and intensified because black people just didn't take this sort of laying down um and what what i mean by that is the logical sort of expression of then being further enclosed upon when the demands are in fact to the counter which is to have Autonomy and autonomy in the sense of either making your own decisions about what should happen in the school, ranging all the way to just give us the material resources and we will make our own schools. Those are the demands that were on the table. And you know, sixty-five, the exact opposite happens when the the city, um, even more so, forecloses upon black life to where you have by 1992 a moment where um the police are multi-layered within the school system so that you would have school police the lapd maybe the la county sheriff involved you have staff officers who serve as de facto police there's these engagements between the L.A. County District Attorney's Office and school districts. There's grant money that's being given from the federal government that's funneled to the state governments, that's funneled to local county go- governments in order to um, enclose upon Black life in the name of public safety. This coordination of all of these entities then in the name of education is recognized as something that. Uh, is then not tenable by many black youth, who then withdraw from school. So then, by that time period, the rate of withdrawal by black youth in L.A. Um, is in some years upwards of over forty percent, right? Um, which is an indictment of what's going on in the schools. This, you know, the the state uh, very um, int- intentionally attempts then to uh, put in sort of like a propaganda narrative, which which we can you know sort of understand to be, uh, we need to stop dropouts and get kids back into school, while at the same time, creating these situations where make where it makes it almost illogical to be in school, like because this this idea of learning and education is far afield, um, there's a whole nother conversation that we can be had in terms of, that can be had in terms of the curricular aspect of what's being taught in school. And, you know, mainly by that point, we have a, a, a testing regime that's gearing up and ready to go to be unleashed. Um, and in some, in some school district was, was already fully unleashed um, to where it's very much like a rote docile inducing Formation of knowledge, which, if we go back once again to 65, is completely antithetical to what Black people are demanding. And so, thus, the state's reaction to that um, leads to the action of Black people to simply withdraw from that process. So, then that introduces to Marley, who has made that decision as well, because he's existing within a school system that is just completely spiraling out of control, sort of like a a dog chasing his tail, trying to do anything it can to not actually listen to the um, demands of Black people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like um, Marley really, he, he knows this, and you you bring in this, you know, this archival research, and you take us back to 1965. And as you said, you know, Marley's existing within this situation. And he also, at at 16, kind of instinctively understands this. And so, like, my next question is about where, where you think Marley's consciousness comes from. And I ask that because, you know, he gets that the problem is the structure and, you know, not necessarily the people in the community. Um, And so, for example, when he talks about housing, he says, and I'm just quoting you, he says, now I'm no expert or nothing, but it seems to me that one of the best ways that you can be safe is if is if you have a roof over your head and he's talking about that in the context of safety and this idea that the we need more police and he's saying well what if we actually had housing rather than you know police what if our needs were actually met rather than these you know things that the state wants to institute and so he's constantly commenting on the social context and the contradictions in the system and he really gets that society is constructed in such a way that doesn't support the lives of the people in the neighborhood. And so I wondered where you where you think um, just this this consciousness comes from, from him.
2: It definitely, it comes from, this is a great question. Uh, thank you for it. It definitely, it comes from um, the community itself. And in part, you know, like those logics that were built into the 92 rebellion were informed by an understanding of the failure of the state. Um, And the failure of the state, necessarily not even in that moment, but the failure of the state, the moment that black people came westward to California. Um, And that story and that particular experience is something that is implicit within uh, black people in South Central LA. Like they, they know that history. I think the the challenge for many people who hear these stories is that it's oftentimes read through the lens of the American myth, which is that you're just not working hard enough, right? Like there, there's something wrong with you that it's it's on the, the individual. And so in, in that way, it's not legible, right? Because there, there, there's something about like you're not taking accountability for for your own actions and when you look you know through the archive it's like what are you talking about like the at every single turn um not only are black people taking sort of um measures to demand upon the city and the state that they want to have control so that they can put in place their own formation of knowledge production i.e. education but the city is stopping them from from doing so and so uh these sort of the the antithetical posturing of these two points of views are like marley and his family and his friends and i i can't overstate this enough they know this right like this is said in conversations again and again and again i think it's just really incumbent upon us to take that way more seriously um and in large part this is you know um a major uh goal of the book is to make the illegible legible which is that so much of our understanding of black life has been made um uh completely illogical to what the way of human existence should be um and and in, in in many ways, uh, what in particular the the archival renderings of that show is that if you continue to follow along that path, that it will ensure to enclose upon black freedom, uh, and freedom for for everybody in 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 that regard, right? So that if if we center um, these sort of uh, stories and experiences as a way then to develop strategies and theories. Then you really get a, a very astute um, understanding of the state, of culture, of politics, of economy, um, which just develops a completely different uh, formation of, of analysis um, as well. And uh, that, you know, I think last thing on this point was um, when given the space to just be and to think about these things, you can really hear them clearly articulated and that was in the space of that political education workshop at, at the Southern California Library in which um, the engagement with um, the 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 young people who were there was very much of allowing them to speak and to articulate what it was that they understood was happening in a way in which the consequences for doing so were, merely further conversation, which should be a no-brainer. But very oftentimes, that's not the case within the educational um, paradigm in which you're existing, in which uh, speaking sort of your truth uh, could lead to you being kicked out of class, expelled from the school, um, being sort of tethered to the um, logics of the prison system in some regard, that it just it gets completely um uh i don't know in 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 a way that it's not living at all right like you're forced to be somebody and forced to who you're not and then you're forced to to hold hold these things in in order to just make it day to day which was a completely different orientation during those moments in the library in which they can go ahead and sort of work out what it is that they're thinking through
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the reasons I really um, liked reading this book is because of, of what you just said is that there is, is that part of what Marley's articulating is, as you said, coming from the community, it's coming from the people. And so I like reading these kinds of books because they also remind me of other African-Americans and just other people who I, I know personally. And I, you know, when I hear them talk, I'm like, oh, they, they get it. They, they fully have a full reading and analysis of what's going on that you rarely see appear in mainstream media and in other books and and things like that. And so I like this idea that you said of making the illegible legible um, and bringing these other kinds of understandings to, uh, you know, to the fore. And Um, And so I also, I just recently went to this Modernism Week in Palm Springs, and they were talking about the California dream. And there were some presentations as well that talked about how the California dream did not always, you know, come true for for black people and African Americans, there were significant barriers to to that. And, you know, I wanted to shift this to because your narrative is very evocative of Los Angeles, of course, I'm also a resident of LA, but I've only lived here for for five years but I was particularly attuned to your descriptions of like the freeway of the weather, the haze, as before we started with the podcast, we talked about how it's raining today, which is rare. Um, But in in the book, you guys, you and Marley are constantly like you're driving around the city. There's a lot of movement in the book. You you're constantly in the car. Um, You're literally in the streets of LA. And so I wondered what kinds of commentary or criticism were you making about Los Angeles as a, city
2: gotcha yes so it you know um i don't actually i don't think implicitly i was um necessarily making a critique of the city um as much as uh trying to document what it was like and what it took to get around the city that's a right um and then b um to also give the perspective of what it means to m- maneuver in this space uh in a way that's authentic to the space and and what i mean by that is if i was in new york or if i was in washington dc or or philly um that much driving just wouldn't make sense right <laughs> like it in, in, in that way cuz there's other ways that are much more logical to to get by and move that just aren't possible in LA because the space is an urban sprawl that is um, maybe unrivaled in terms of a city outside of Chicago but even Chicago has a pretty functional public transportation system which LA's public transportation system is not functional as someone who's attempted to take it (laughs) and sort of been failed upon (laughs) several times Um, and Um, so, so in, in, in that regard, you know, if, if there is a critique of it is just how hard it is to actually move from one space to another, if you don't have access to a car, otherwise you're reliant upon a system of mainly buses to, to get by. And the buses are, um, crowded usually like they're, they're pretty heavily used. Um, but they're also... Um, not necessarily, they, they don't run on time all the time um and it's you know it, it's just it's it's difficult to get from one part of the city to another part in particular if you're trying to to get goods or resources or services so if, if you have to be for example at a county building um way on the other side of of la uh, within an hour and the bus runs once an hour like you're not going to get there like it's impossible to, to get there. So, so that aspect of it is, is extremely, um, true. I think, you know, for me documenting, um, LA, uh, through this experience of sort of, of driving around was, you know, an attempt to, um, describe the city in a way in which many people experience the city themselves. Uh, and so much of the time that's spent, Around LA is going by places that have so much beauty and are so profound, but oftentimes people just miss it because you're literally trying to get from one place to another in a car, which again is it's much different than than other cities in which you can really you know if you're in New York and you're you know traveling by foot, you really get to experience the city in in a completely different um, way than if you're in LA, Um, you know in LA's attempted. To form slash replicate that with downtown l a, which is a conversation for a whole nother podcast, maybe um but that's been like a miserable failed experiment <laughs> um that you know like for for people who have grown up here in l a downtown l a looks completely different um over the last fifteen years. Um, and there's this fascination with downtown LA, which just is an invention, um, for many people who have grown up in, in, in the city, uh, because it it's something that actually doesn't represent, um, like the, the LA experience. And for people then who come ex- and experience downtown LA, there's often there's often like a disappointment slash what the heck is going on down there type of thing. All right. So I'll leave that as a side, I'm gonna get too far afield <laughs> on that. Um, but i will say uh about driving um one of the things then however that you do get to see is and you know this is this is experience when marley and i are driving to santa barbara is you do get to then understand um the material reality of what drives the state economy so much of the understanding of california is of either it's a tech beacon, such as Silicon Valley and increasingly what they call Silicon Beach in Southern California, um, or the entertainment industry. But in fact, much of what drives the state is agriculture. And so we see this driving from LA to Santa Barbara, because you have to pass through um, Ventura and Oxnard, of which they're just fields and fields and fields of Agriculture that is being grown, <clears throat> and then this this question of land becomes readily apparent. And so, referencing then back to your previous question about how is it that you know Marley is able to come up with this analysis? Is that once you're able to you you have this understanding that there is enough space in this place for all of us to be able to live in a way. That we, where we can have safety. There's enough food for everybody, right? This is a thought that you already know. You drive roughly 70 miles north out of the city and all of a sudden you see all this land and you see all this food and you question how can we be going hungry and not have land where there's all of this that's right here, right? And those two diametrically opposed sort of um, understandings of, of what's happening are put together. And um, it's through sort of like the, the the travel and experience of moving through uh, this space that the um, continuity of black ontological experiences are made known. That is the importance of understanding agriculture to the state of California as being um, very much tied to why the state is so valuable and so important to the rest of the United States, but then also um, how that's in direct tension with the demands of Black people as well. Simultaneously to, to that is that you see all these people who are working in the fields And then how that labor is being exploited and then tied to the experience of Marley and his um, friends also, right? So all these things are coming into point of view through the sort of the the aspect of of driving and and seeing all this right in, in front of your face, but being able to interpret that in real time as well um becomes uh, very vital and then the 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 last thing I'll say to this <clears throat> is that it just sort of points out um that the aspect of the car uh is extremely important and one of the things that i didn't necessarily uh talk about in the book um but it's it's very important um in 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 the current moment is that um the car and the vehicle, because housing is such a tenuous situation, not only serves as a site of transportation, but in many instances also serves as a site of housing uh, for for people. And so there's there's like another layer that's added to that in this space that has all this land that's very vast, that's sprawling. Is that somehow this thing that's needed to move around all that also then serves as a ironic site of like a, a home in in some respect.
0: Yeah, so thank you. So you, um, back to, the, this question is kind of back to Marley but it's also maybe about the, um, I guess, research of the book too. Um, and so you, you place the analytical and narrative weight on Marley in the book. Um, meaning he's like your primary interlocutor and I said this to you before we started I was talking to the last person I interviewed for this podcast was Dr. Lee Baker and so we had um, had talked about this as well that you know we noticed that you know he was the the main you know person in the book and and I wondered then you know what were the challenges and opportunities of focusing on one person and when did you decide to only focus on Marley was it was it sort of, maybe at the beginning of the project or as the project went along, you thought, oh, I, I can um, I can only, you know, focus on him. Um, so if you could just talk about this choice of using kind of one interlocutor for the narrative of the book.
2: Yeah, so I, I, th- this is a great question. And <clears throat> I'm not sure, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm not sure if there was when I could pinpoint the exact time to when I was like, all right, this is going to be, a story about Marley, um, in terms of it registering that, like the the weight or the gravity of his story would carry the 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 book forward, in as much as that Marley was representative of many people that I encountered and met, um, in terms of like his understanding of knowledge is an understanding of education, the journey in terms of having withdrawn from school, having a a family dynamic, which was um, very tenuous, um, as well as trying to figure out how to um, quote unquote, like make it and make it not, not in the sense of how to make it so that they can make it out, but actually how to make it so that the community itself could um realize uh its vision and in that way then um you know there was a point in which uh telling multiple stories i felt would blur that particular continuity of it while it would perhaps add nuance and depth to it there's a way in which you get the multiplicity of the experience of being Black in the city through being able to focus in on this one particular um, rendering of of um, what it meant to be a young Black person at the time. Now, I would also state that, there, you know, uh, the story, if it was told um, through the lens of someone who was... Um, like maybe older or someone who, who didn't identify as masculine or um, someone maybe who uh, was more inclined to be in line with like the state process, it would be a completely different type of narrative. So that part I'm acutely uh, aware of. <clears throat> but I think more importantly, um, is that you get to see sort of like the tensions that exist as well that um, Marley has with his friends and his peers and um, also that dynamic that Marley has with elders um, as well. And this creates a sort of um, gravity of the community uh, which I hope, which I hope you know my hope is that you get to really feel um that, that sort of like sink in because it's uh, really focused on on him.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, I think you do uh, get to see his interactions with other people and you take us into the Southern California Library and the you know barbecue that he's trying to plan. I mean, it very is very very much a book. Um, grounded in the in the community that you were looking at and um, and then this probably takes me to the to the next question, because the archive, the Southern California archive is located in the community and this is a kind of a question, I guess, about archives. And, you know, we talk about this difficulty of sometimes of finding Black people in the archive, depending on the time period that we're talking about. Um, But maybe sometimes one also can't always just find the archive as well. And so I say this because you talk about this in the book, that there's this That there was this invisibility of the Southern California archive, and I I myself have never heard of it. Although, as I said, I haven't lived here very long, and so, um, but I've also have come to learn about other community archives in LA, and um, particularly in like South LA and um, maybe South Central LA. But um, I wondered what kind of commentary you were making about the archive in the book, and if you wanted to talk about um, anything going on at the Southern California Library uh, now
2: sure yeah um so i think you know a part of it is that what what i have learned is that um there's a, there's a slight irony between what many of the like sort of popular destinations slash um places that people go uh to get archival documents <laughs> oftentimes these places um partner with slash get their information from community archives which is something that i learned while working with the southern california library um that many for example many universities readily know that there's like massive gaps in their archival collection so then they reach out to community archives to try to figure out how to fill in um those gaps and so that being said um The Southern California Library itself represents both, like there's this, there is an archival um, aspect to understanding um, the needs and being attuned to uh, that of black communities and black neighborhoods in a way uh, that needs to be handled with care and with love. And that is perhaps one of the most uh, important aspects that Yusef, Michelle, and Raquel conveyed to me, which was that in order to have people be able to engage with archival material, they couldn't necessarily have those same measures or policies that traditional archival spaces had, right? So when you go into the library, um, it's not as if... You have to request something and then wait and you get just that one thing. It's very much a, a a dynamic where they will give you like what whatever it is that you want. Like here it is. Like you can see all of this if you want it, right? You, 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 can, you can have this whole box and go through it and see what you can find and learn from. We will sit with you and we will help you try to figure out to the best of our ability how it is to find something like X, Y, or Z. We will host classes for schools uh, in the area. If, as as I mentioned before, um, parents come in with their kids and they have to do an assignment, they are able to suss out like the the most readily, easily accessible formation from the archive or from their book collection to help out, right? It's definitely this dynamic in which they understand their relationship to the community Their relationship to the archives is as such that they don't they're not owners of the archives they're they are stewards of the archives but they're not owners of the archive that's a and then b most importantly perhaps it goes back to this um uh, aspect of love and the framing of love is that there is a a willingness to share the information that's not based upon a commodification of said information that it is there for you to learn from um which cr- creates a completely different orientation to knowledge in in, in of itself oh and then you, you also ask what what the library is up to as well <laughs> which um and they're doing a host of programming um most recently uh this is about the past like four weeks i, I believe it was um so, this, so this this is just as an anecdote. Uh, myself, um, and Dylan Rodriguez, who is the director for the Center of Society and Ideas at UC Riverside, and the Southern California Library, hosted a mini seminar around the archive, actually. Um, and it was it was it was a virtual uh four week long seminar, um, and we discussed many aspects of. Archiving, archival processes, um, what it means to hold various things in space, what it means to not hold things in space, and in a in an intentional manner, um, how one uh, sort of frames projects based upon what's in the archive as well. Um, so they they do a lot of work around that in terms of with universities, but they also do work with um, high school age students um, with community or organizations and with uh, independent uh, scholars and, and researchers and of course people in the neighborhood as well
0: mm-hmm. yeah that sounds like such important work um, we'll have to have to keep my eye out for it now that I now that I'm aware of it from learning about it in your work. Um, so my, my last question is about what you're working on now or what you have coming up in the future. So any, any projects or, um, any current activities, you know, you're doing what you have on the horizon, either with research or, um, teaching or any other activities.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I have a, um, a book that actually has coming out in April, um, called against the Carson archive, speaking about archives and it's, a uh, a theorization of of the archive um, itself. is coming out on uh, Fordham Press. And I'm excited um, about that because it's an engagement with um, situating the logics of carcerality against the backdrop of theorizing of the human um, and of history as formed by um, Sylvia Winter and Cedric Robinson to then develop a meditation upon the state and its archival capacity as um, outlined um, by collections within the Southern California Library.
0: Wow, well congratulations on that. Um, So we'll have to look out for that and it's called Against the Carceral Archive from Fordham University Press. That's so. right, yep. Great. So we'll have to have you back on the podcast to talk about no. <laughs> and, and to talk about how you can, how one can, uh, I guess, publish two books within maybe a year or two of each other. So, so yeah. <laughs> Those are questions that need answers. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, Damien, for telling us all about the book, Joy and Pain. Um, I've been speaking with Dr. Damien Sojourner, who is the author of the book, Joy and Pain, A Story of Black Life and Liberty. And Five Albums, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. These are wonderful questions, um, and thanks for the invitation.